Bombs, bullets and the border. Hello and welcome back to the fourth episode in Stories from a Border Kitchen. This week's guest was Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. It was another interesting discussion following on from previous podcasts with Eamon McCann on Brexit, Brian Hanley on Bloody Sunday and Katie Hayward again on Brexit. Again, all these episodes are still available online on either SoundCloud or iTunes. So if you want to, you can download them at any time and they will stay available online for the foreseeable future. So Hugh, you listened back to the podcast during the editing process. What was your view? Yeah, thanks, Paddy. Uh, very interesting. Um, I was surprised at Matt's views on the Sinn Féin leadership going forward, um, particularly his strong view that Pierre Starty was, was the man to lead the party going forward. As well as that, I was uh, maybe surprised at the fact that he mentioned that he would enjoy, enjoy a contest. And obviously, the thing that came very clear through the interview was that he felt that there's a lot of capable people within the party. Like the Brian Hanley interview, I suppose it was very difficult for me, as, lo- as well as you in the editing room, um, to try and you know, take away content. But I suppose we managed to get it closer to the 45-minute mark this time. He seems to have a, a very close relationship with Pierce Doherty. Um, in the interview, it comes across that Pierce doesn't see himself as a, a leader or the next leader of Sinn Féin. And I think that was, it was interesting that Pierce didn't see himself in that position. But and then I suppose Matt's passion for politics comes across. Very interesting character, very affable sort of man. It's really, really interesting discussion. I enjoyed it. Again, talking about his own personal background, growing up outside the country for a time, coming back, moving to Carrie Cross, getting involved. And Sinn Féin in, I suppose, the mid to late 90s when it probably wasn't a fashionable thing to do. Um, you know, all that was very, very interesting. And, you know, to, again, like everybody's personal story is, is, is interesting too. Have you anything else lined up for you before we go into Matt in terms of future interviews for us here on the podcast? Like I mentioned in the previous podcast promo, Paddy, uh, looking forward to interviewing Oshin McConville. Um, as I said... <laughs> Cross McGlenn was always very, very close to border politics. Um, interesting to hear his views on a number of issues. Um, I suppose he's working within DKIT at the moment. Um, so, you know, the transition maybe made from playing into other, other elements of his life. So it would be interesting to hear on his views on that. We've also just set up a brand new Twitter account for the podcast. So you can find us on Twitter at, at border underscore kitchen. And please don't be afraid to give us a shout for any ideas of future episodes, to give us a like, a retweet of uh, posting of podcasts, etc. So um, just that's at, at border underscore kitchen. And yeah, it makes such a massive difference to 
our listenership when people retweet follow and so on so if you find an episode interesting share it please retweet it and follow um, our twitter handle we'll hopefully get a few followers in the next few weeks so it's just been launched with this episode so, yeah. I'm here in Carrick Cross with Matt Carthy. Matt was a member of Carrick Cross Urban District Council. He was elected in 1999. He was elected to Monaghan County Council in 2004. And in 2014, he became Sinn Féin MEP in one of the party's best days. Speaking with Matt, Matt, just yourself as a person, who is Matt Carthy outside of politics? Just who are you? Well, first of all, politics does take up an awful lot of my time, Paddy. Um, but... You know, I'm, I like to think of myself as just a, an, or, an ordinary Monaghan lad, although I spent a lot of my childhood in different places. I was born in England, lived in Roscommon for a, a, a large part of my childhood, uh, my father's hometown, um, back to um, a place in North Wales for about a year before I finally settled here with my mother and brother and sister in the late 80s. Um, I think it was about 11 or 12 when we made to, came to Cartmore Cross and... Um, it has been my home ever since. So I'm married to Lynn. We have five kids, um, and time I have with the family and going to like so that's good. Matt, five kids and Lynn. She's a Donegal lady. Well, Donegal connection. I like to say she's a Donegal a Donegal woman. She's actually consider herself a dub. She she lived all her life, but her father's a Donegal yeah. man and her woman. So you're her very familiar. Woman. Ross Common, not a million miles from the border. Mm-hmm. Monaghan, you were growing up here late 80s you know there was a lot of stuff going on near the border you know and people sometimes speak of a border identity can you relate to that or is there any i can a, a wee bit like my politics didn't uh, i'm not well politics were absolutely shaped by when i came back to carrot Cross, but in a, a strange way so when i was young in roscommon for example i wouldn't have had any sense that we were close to the border at all Um, would have been aware through just the basic history at school that you know of partition and um I, I would have had a just a graph for history at a very young age but nothing too elaborate probably the period of time where my politics were first um or my interest in politics would have been first sparked would have been when we moved to a place called Hollywell in North Wales, which was very close to the English border. I suppose it was in Ireland that would be called a garrison town. Mm. There was an awful lot of English people li- um, living in it. And I'd say it was about the uh, um, late 80s, and it was just a time of, um, I suppose it was a time of um, big change in my life because I'd mm. moved from um, a rural um, two-teacher school in, in outside of Strokesound to a huge school in 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 Wales, um, but at the time I remember there would have been an IRA bombing campaign. It was the time the Gibraltar um three um were killed at that time, and as a result of all that, there was a, a sort of a reemergence of a very anti-Irish sentiment going on. So I remember going to school, and you would have had teachers, um, you know, being very um very abrupt with you. A lot of the students would have been, would have you know carried some of their anti-Irish sentiments probably in from their their parents and there would have been obviously a huge anti-IRA sentiment but it extended to anybody who was associated with Ireland and yet at the same time I was going home my parents weren't political at all so you know my parents were the type that tut tutted on the television yeah. you know whenever anything relating to um to the conflict um came on without going into any great detail so um in the first case um it would have been when I came back to Carbon Cross so we actually lived and um, rented a house on this street here with me, my mother here on Monaghan Street um, just across the road from the library so when we first came back to Cartman Cross 
you know, I wouldn't have known too many people. So I spent an awful lot of time in the library and just trying to chew up all anything I could in terms of Irish Irish history. And um, I was trying to, I suppose, get a sense of what it was that was causing these people to go over to England and, and plant bombs and what it led to people to be in Gibraltar in the first place and, and all, all of that. And I suppose um, I certainly would have come to a point where I would have been, I suppose, nationalist in the broadest terms, in terms of supporting uh, United Ireland. But I remember not being, being not long back in Cartmel Cross when one day with relations, we ended up in Cullaville, as you know, just a yeah. few miles out the, out the road. And the um, place was swarming with British Army and um, there was obviously um, an influx that day. And I remember just feeling incredibly angry about it and, you know, thinking that this is completely, completely wrong. And, you know, effectively foreign soldiers in what I consider to be my, my own hinterland. So that, you know, that gave me, I suppose, life experiences that I wouldn't have got if I lived anywhere else. So in that sense, probably the border region. But um. It, Carrick as a town probably was a little bit more insulated than maybe some of the other Monaghan towns in terms of um you know the the conflict itself I, you yeah. I remember the barracks here would have been the location sometimes we'd see the TV crews where people would have been arrested yeah. and maybe taken taken there but as I suppose I've, I often say this I was lucky in many respects because my political awakening and my republican um um views and particularly I suppose you could described them as militant Republican views in terms of what I yeah. thought was the response that the those same soldiers um, should have been given happened to coincide at a time when the Republican leadership was actually moving to a point where they were convincing not be not only my generation but older people that there was a political and a peaceful route um, to achieving um, our, our, our game so that's how I got involved in politics but absolutely Cart McCross shaped me in a way and just two aspects of that one you were over in England, or in Wales, sorry, in the late 80s. Class, I've heard just a lot of people speak about class has been a dimension of life in England or in Wales at that mm. time. You're talking, that was very much the Thatcher era. Yeah. Was, that, was that something that, you know, you experienced or you could relate to, or was it not an issue? And the other aspect is, when you're at school then, when you come into Carrington Cross, these probably weren't popular issues to be speaking about in terms of the Troubles at school yeah um well in, in terms of the class i can't say that i i recognized it entirely um you you would have got a sense of it we were actually i attended a catholic school um you um which was outside of the town so probably had it was probably more like an irish school in that sense and that it would have had a mixture of all mm. the classes and not like in some other parts of britain where you would have very clearly um one school for the wealthier um and another um, um, um school um, for others, so I didn't get that that real sense. Although, um, you know, obviously, um, at the time, my father was a workman. You know, um, and um, you know, my mother was a stay-at-home mother at that, at that stage. So, but I never, I can't say I really. It was a relatively small town that we were staying in, so I didn't get that um full sense. When I came back to Carrickmore Cross, I, like at that stage, I think it was fifth class when I came back. I think you know the most elaborate that. You know, the political discussions would have been um, would have been as to which of us like to see England getting bet and by how many goals most it would have been yeah. I suppose just a, a, hand, a, a healthy anti-English sentiment more than anything it would have been much more um, in terms of under getting a grasp of politics would have been um, probably when I went to secondary school um, I would have met a lot of people from rural areas that would be much closer to the to the border and have a much more of, of a sense of 
you know, the impact of you know, of partition and of the con- conflict and I would have been speaking to them. But yeah, probably by the time I got to third or fourth year, I would have been very vocal in terms of uh, in, in terms of my position. But I, ne- I can't ever re- recall um, that ever being, you know, a barrier. I think, yeah. you know, probably, uh, you know, most people by and large in this area would have agreed with the views that, you know, partition was wrong and that, um, we should have a reunified country and that was probably as elaborate as the political discussions got like certainly I don't remember until much later on probably when you'd be 15 or 16 or um, even leaving cert year where you would have actually talked about the uh, party political differences and, and approaches you know I often say my, my view I started reading about politics um, would have been all around the Tan War, you know, the usual, the, the usual starters, the Tom Barry books, um, um, Dan Breen, um, you know, a lot of the history around the 20s and, and maybe even the, the early 30s. I thought that probably Fianna Fáil at that stage would have been a natural home yeah. um, based on the premise on which Fianna Fáil was established. My own um, father family probably would have been Fianna Fáil um, um, family traditionally anyway. So it was only when I actually got to start reading about the history Post partition and um, the evolution of this state and uh, and particularly the this state's response to the northern um, 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 crisis that um, I would have moved very clearly to the view that Fianna Fáil whatever the question was Fianna Fáil wasn't the answer um, and you know and then I moved to the point where you know I obviously saw Sinn Féin as a natural home. It's uh, very interesting. I seen a picture up on social media recently. I think it was of yourself and Pierre Starry coming down. Uh, Dublin Street in Monaghan after Kevin O'Gillan was elected in 97 am mm. I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. I presume it was in or around that time that you sort of became involved was it? Or yeah about a, about a year before um, I think it was 1996 I joined Sinn Féin in Dublin when I went up to mm. um, college um, in Dublin the first thing I tried to do was figure out how to join Sinn Féin and it, it wasn't easy I remember there was a, a building in um, Blessing Street with a big Sinn Féin um, sign and I knocked on it every door for about every day for about a fortnight and no answer and it was only then I found out that the building had actually been shut down the year before and that the actual Sinn Féin offices were on Parnell's um, Square where there was no um, external sign that this was a Sinn Féin building but I eventually got my way into that and, and Pierce as you say and a number of others we had a we were different in different campuses of DIT, but we set up a DIT common, yeah. um, and you know basically the college work went out the door then, and we just worked out. So um, and then in nineteen ninety seven, um, I came back and um obviously Quavin was running um for election. I'd met him at the Ardesh, which was held in the Hillgrove that year, the Shinvin Ardesh, and I I told him I'd be happy to help out in in any way. So he put me in contact with some of the local people here, and it was just a huge experience. Um, for me and it was you know some of the things I remember from it you know, it was the first time knocking on doors you know getting canvas and I went right across um the um, the two counties um in often with Quaving um who was always very accommodating of younger people um getting involved in the, in the party but you know the thing that I, it was amazing to me the amount of goodwill at the time you know people wishing you well and and, and you know there was a support for Sinn Féin that I never under never actually understood or um, realized was there um and uh, obviously a lot of that was down to the goodwill that Quavine had built up over 
uh, over the years. And then for the last um, two weeks of the campaign, Pierce Doherty actually came down and stayed with us. And I often, uh, we uh, function to mark Quavine's 20th anniversary of being elected. And I was saying on the night, like it's a sign of how things have changed, that there wasn't actually a Sinn Féin candidate standing in, que- in Pierce's home constituency that um, that year. So, you know, now, um, 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 obviously, you know, Pierce is probably the predominant political figure and Sinn Féin is certainly um, arguably the 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 predominant political party there but it was it, that was I remember just a huge sense of achievement and of history particularly the day of the count in Coot Hill people came from all over the country Republicans and um, and you know there was just huge numbers but there was a real sense that something big is happening and I actually think even now 20 years later that the significance of that election is often lost you know where and I because I'd be talking to a lot of young people and especially young people who are in the party and you know now that we have 23 TDs and we're tripping over senators and MLAs and all the rest you can't understate the significance of that first TD um, and it being quaving and I think um, the you know the, it was a breakthrough into the doll I think it vindicated for many people um, the you know the peace strategy but also the electoral stra- strategy it vindicated um um the huge amount of work the quaving himself personally had put into that but plus it opened up doors and a lot of time a lot of people outside of Cavan Mon and especially the further south you went the first time that they actually heard a shinner from this state was actually when they heard Quavin O'Kalon speaking in the doll and they heard this articulate, reasonable, pragmatic um person who was who didn't have two heads um um and who who was very passionate and um in terms of what he wanted to see and it was and not just on the national question but in terms of social justice and equality and I think that that certainly opened up a lot of doors for us so I you know I'm I, you know, I look back fondly at that time and I do think that we were part of something huge. Now, just and I'm thinking of the very personal dimension of this. Um, there was an American academic, Bob White, and he went round and he interviewed Republicans. He interviewed them in the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties. He talked about their involvement, and he was talking about you know the sacrifice people were making individuals. So he was talking about people involved in Sinn Fein and I suppose the IRA. I suppose he was talking to them, and he was sort of talking about how people were full time activists in Sinn Fein and how you know there might have been issues of you know, special branch harassment of Republicans, because, you know, there was still an IRA mm-hmm. campaign at the time, and he was talking about how, you know, people, some people stayed involved and some people didn't, some people moved away, and, you know, for yourself, it it probably wasn't a good career move at that time, you know, there was po- possibly people saying to you, Matt, would you, you know, this isn't good for you career-wise, been involved in Sinn Féin. Would that have been an issue? Would that have been something you'd remember? Really? Yeah, no, well, certainly when in Dublin in the 96, right through probably to the early 2000s, the special branch harassment is all you could call it, of young people in particular, um, was extensive. Um, you know, I remember there was a long period of time where you couldn't leave 44 Parnell Square um, without getting stopped, your bag searched, you know, your bag emptied, um, you know, the usual questions by the usual pe- people, and they'd always ask questions that they knew they weren't entitled to to ask, um, like your social security number, PPSN, or whatever we call it back back then, um, um, and they would have made quite a number of um, approaches to people's homes to their businesses to their schools if they were um, slightly slightly younger and it did have an impact although it happened at a time where we probably never had as many young people join the party than we did in that couple, couple of years that I was involved in. our biggest problem actually was 
logistically and administratively been able to deal with all the people who wanted to join and figure out what we what we did with them but the, um, but what often struck me was because that was in Dublin City when I came back here and was attending Republican events and even at that stage there was never any um, special branch um, um, events the first time I actually saw um, um, and the special branch um, um, at an event in Carrick Macross was actually at the funeral of an elderly man um, and there were there was it was he was a single man a bachelor and um, with no family that we were able to find and there was about 40 or 50 of us at the funeral including all his neighbours and we were pulling into I remember it was a dreary wet um, wet day and we were pulling into St Joseph's Cemetery and um, special branch were across uh, across the the road and that was the only time well, I ever saw them in Carrington Cross. Why do you think the difference between Carrington Cross and Monaghan? Because I don't think I I think I I actually think that the reason being, especially after the election of Quaven, I don't think it there would have been it would have been um in politically um 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 accepted for them to for them to do it because in a small town like this people knew me and mm-hmm. um, they knew me as a young fella had political political views but they knew i was no threat to the state mm-hmm. so people would have quite rightly asked questions in cart macross about the uh, investment of guard resources into stopping me outside a Sinn Féin office whereas i suppose in dublin there was that anonymity and it was just easier for them to do it so i think there was a couple of reasons for it in terms of why they were doing what they were doing in dublin i think part of it was justifying their own wages and their own their own roles in the new era that it was, and um, but secondly, undoubtedly, it was to try and frighten people away from getting involved, politically active. No, and if you just think again, they talk sometimes in political science about political generation, generations coming of age. You know, like you, American sixty eight, Paris and sixty seven or whatever, and then you talk about say the Sinn Fein leadership emergence, say between sixty nine and seventy one. You know that would be Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness. You would have had another generation of Republicans coming through in eighty one, and you speak, you know, speak very passionately about that experience and the collective identity, and you know yourself and Pierre Starherty, obviously very close. You also people like Owen O'Brien in the leadership, Michelle O'Neill, um, coming through at that time too. How influential was that period in sort of? galvanizing your ideas and I suppose your political ideology it was a very opportune time to get involved in in politics especially in Republican politics because so much was happening um, I was speaking in Monaghan Institute to a group of students earlier on and when I mentioned the fact that just a couple of years before I joined Sinn Féin um, our representatives weren't allowed on the television and the radio and they were you know you could see the heads looking back you couldn't imagine that a political party would actually be banned from from the airwaves so um, there was a number of things that happened that I think that um, encouraged an awful lot of people to want to get involved in politics at that particular time you know the end of censorship was um, um, was a big thing probably vindicates the reason for censorship in the first place for those who advocated it um but um also the peace process the you know the prominence that was given to republican ideals like it was the first time that you heard people in debates and not only Sinn Féin people talking about the legitimacy of wanting to see United Ireland without you know uh, uh, without it being um just um scoffled at or what or whatever the case may be and then I suppose it was just a moment in a moment in time but it's true an awful lot of um people who would now be um hold very important roles not only in Sinn Féin because lots of people who are involved with us at that time have gone on to prominence in in, in other fields you know if from Sinn Féin point of view I can think of off the top of my head people like Pierre Stardy, David Cullinan as you mentioned Owen O'Brien uh, M- Michelle O'Neill um, 
yeah, Tracia Ferris down in Kerry. There are countless others who were who were involved at that time who were playing really important roles. But that's not to say that, you know, in, in the intervening time since that lots of other people haven't come involved. And I can name another mm-hmm. handful of TDs who are younger than all of us um, at that time as well and other people who are holding very important roles. But it was a particular point in time. And I think in many ways our experiences are important and they're an important contribution to the debates because I suppose we're, we're on the cusp. We remember the conflict we remember the challenges and the debates and some of the debates were intense, as you can imagine, around the Good Friday Agreement, even though we would have only been on the periphery of them. And, and we've seen the developments since. So that obviously shapes shapes our, our mind. And yet we never had the experience of being directly involved in conflict related um, events. So all of that, you know, you know, has created, I suppose, um, uh, a sense of um, a sense of ownership of the peace process, but also um, a sense of, um, of uh, a sense of the importance of the work that we're doing as well can be. Now, and if you go on to your role within the European Parliament, if you think of Sinn Féin and the left generally, there was I suppose critical engagement with the European Union for a long time. If you go say back to 1973, Sinn Féin would have opposed the entry in um, to the European Union. Likewise, in the UK. You know, the Labour Party in the UK called for a referendum on membership of the European Union back in the mid-70s. So the left generally had issues with the European Union. And not just the left, I suppose all political observers would have had issues with um, the organisation and the functioning of the European Parliament. What was your impression of the European Parliament before going into it? You know, the criticisms of it and... How did your expectations of it meet the reality of it? Well, you're right. We we do critically engage with the European Union. I often say that Sinn Féin has the distinction of being the only political party in Ireland that has accepted the democratic decision of the people on every referendum, including those we lost. Um, other parties um, were quick to rerun referendums when they didn't when they didn't go their way. Um, and a lot of the criticisms um, that we have outlined relating to the European Union are very evident. And I would argue that they're acknowledged by the vast majority of people Um, obviously I wasn't quite aware of what to expect when I went to the European Parliament but my sense of it very quickly when I went into the European Parliament and saw it vis-a-vis European institutions is that there is an element of the European institutions being purposely designed to be complicated there is um, an intended um, um, position that people don't fully understand what's going on and there is a massive disconnect between the institutions and citizens and in some cases that's not an accident that is by design because some things happen at an EU level they wouldn't happen in a national parliament because people wouldn't get away with it um, um, and I, th- I do think that there is a democratic deficit within the EU that needs to be um, addressed and you know as you can imagine that's a nuanced position because I support the concept of a European Union I think there are some things that we can only deal with effectively if we deal with them um, as uh, as um, you know countries coming together um, to try and re- resolve them. I agree with the concept of having a single market um, and a custom a customs union. I I think on areas like climate change and other issues we should be working um, together. Um, but I have been very critical of a lot of the direction that the European Union has been taken, and I've been disappointed with just the. Uh, um, immediate dismissiveness of EU leaders with regard to particularly 
democratic um, um, decisions that have been taken. And we say, saw it in our own country. And we off, I often revert back to the Lisbon Treaty because I think a lot of what's wrong with the EU today lies in that Lisbon Treaty. And what sometimes people forget is the Lisbon Treaty was actually originally an EU constitution. It was called an EU constitution. And what happened it was to go around all member states for ratification. And among the first two that was put there were the French and the Dutch. And the French and the Dutch people rejected them, rejected the constitution emphatically. And I think the seeds of a lot of the problems that EU um, um, have, since, uh, have, have since reaped lay in the fact that when EU leaders came together, they didn't decide to actually acknowledge what it was that had led to the French and the Dutch rejecting the EU constitution and take the message. Instead, they actually decided, how can we repackage this in such a way that people won't have to vote on it? And their answer was the Lisbon Treaty, and which was effectively the constitution rewrapped and reworded so that it didn't have to actually be put to the people. And they got away with it, if you like, apart from those pesky kids in Ireland. Um, and then when, when Ireland um, rejected it, we were forced to vote on it again. And if you look at what happened in Greece, when the Greeks voted down, and likewise since Brexit, um, which is an absolute disaster. I think you know the British made the wrong decision. It's for them to make, but it's a, it's a particular disaster for Ireland. But even since then, the European Commission has failed to actually understand that, yes, there was a xenophobic, racist element. There was also um, just a completely anti-EU element. But there was a proportion, which arguably made the difference between winning and losing, of ordinary English people who, probably Scottish but Welsh people as well, who just felt that the EU was no longer a social body that represented progressive um, politics. And still, the European Commission haven't actually understood that lesson yet. And I fear for the European Union as a result of and that. And that's a major point. And I think it's ignored it a lot in the Southern debate in Ireland. And that people, you know, that take certain satisfaction in laughing at English Tories who've reaped so much havoc on their own country. But a large part of it is, as you say, down to a lot of ordinary people throughout Europe's dissatisfaction with the organisation of the European Union. Do you think there's, you know, for a lot of political figures in the South, you know, and it might be unusual for Sinn Féin to be sort of standing up for the Brits, if you like, but the British people, you know, they've, they had legitimate concerns about the functioning of the European Union and maybe if the European Union move to a position whereby they try to listen to those concerns a wee bit more, it might be in everybody's interest? Well, absolutely. I think, listen, the, the, as I always said, listen, the, the, the British people can make um, are entitled to make whatever decision that they want to make. Now, they're not entitled to drag the north of Ireland with them along with their, with their decisions. As I say, I think they made the wrong um, decision. I think they did it for the, the wrong reasons. But even if you listen to Jean-Claude Juncker recently made a State of the EU address to the European Parliament, and I described it as him effectively saying that the EU intends to do what it always intended to do, only quicker. Um, and that's basically it. So they talked about harmonisation of taxation, the you know, creation of an EU um, security and defence, which is effectively an EU army. Probably the last thing the world needs now is another you know, heavily armed military force. Um, you know the um, issues pertaining to trade deals uh, you know all the things that people don't like about Europe and that's what they're pursuing with um, and uh, you know in many cases they're now taking advantage of the fact that the British aren't there would probably one of the states who was willing to face down um, the European Union on some of the on the bigger issues um, and they're taking advantage of, of all of that now none of that's to say that um, you know Brexit isn't actually going to create huge problems notwithstanding and I would have argued you know 
um, even to the to the English left that they would be much better um, in, in being within the European Union because I foresaw some of the um, the difficulties and make no mistake about it the people who led Brexit in England weren't doing so because of a desire to see citizens' rights being protected or the sovereignty of uh, of small nations or anything like that. They were doing it because they saw it as the vested interests of their own colonial, uh, um, I suppose, um, interests. Now, and just going on to Brexit now, um, you were in Dundalk last night speaking, you were in Clonus the night before. What are people saying to you around here? What's yeah, the impact of Brexit? And, and, and one of the things that we have to use these public meetings and discussions, because it's very hard, as you can imagine, and you're probably gathering, was it, to to put all our positions vis-a-vis Europe into a soundbite. And that's why So it's, it's easy for um, um, a lot of the other parties to turn around and dismiss us as being anti just anti-europe and Sinn Féin are anti-europe and therefore our opinion doesn't count for count for anything um now funny enough when it comes to brexit they know our opinion counts for something because the european parliament and the european institutions recognize Sinn Féin as being um, a major political um uh, and political point in ireland and they, they they have no difficulties whatsoever in coming to seek our advice and guidance in particular to issue Listen, there's a huge concern, particularly around the border area, because I think people in the border region probably know acutely the immediate dangers that um, that are presenting themselves by, you know, any possibility of a physical manifestation of the border. But even that the the invisible manifestations of the border. Um, one of the things we've been saying, and I think people understand this, is that you know all this talk of soft or hard border. There's no such thing as a soft border. Every border in the world. Um, is hard to some degree. That's why border regions um, invariably have the highest poverty rates, highest emigration rates when it comes to Ireland, the lowest rates of investment to do it because borders have an economic impact. Um, and our own border has, has wrecked economic havoc on these on, on, on the entire island, I would argue, but particularly on the border region where it's more um, acutely visible, visible. So people are really concerned about that. But one of the key messages we've been trying to um, articulate is that this isn't just about people in you know Clonus or Rosslea or in Dundalk or Newry or Cartmacross and Cullaville. This is something that's going to have impact. You know, and and the, the full levels of the impacts of Brexit, you know, it's very hard to quantify because they cover every single area almost of our lives, but particularly in terms of the economics of it. And you're one of the few people in the country that's going to have a vote on this uh, in the European Parliament. What exactly is the European Parliament's role in terms of the ratification of the whole process? Oh, well, officially, the European Parliament's role is simply um, to vote on the final package, yes mm. or no. Um, what the European Parliament has actually done is insert itself into the discussion much earlier on and has been given very clear indications. As to, it's a guy called Guy Verhofstadt, so he's the former um, Prime Minister of Belgium. He's the head of the ALDE, which is the Liberal Group um, within the European Parliament. He's a guy who I agree on on almost nothing um, because he's one of the, the, the people who I was talking about in terms of that has a, a vision for Europe that's very different than what I would assume to be the view of most Irish people. But on Brexit, I have to say, and particularly relating to Ireland, he is 100% um, um, understanding. And there has been a much greater understanding at an EU level for the Irish border and the challenges that Brexit presents than there have been in London, where they don't have a notion. Um, they really do not understand the complexities of the, of the Irish border. Like when you're speaking to British politicians, you would never believe that they actually have been in our country one way or another for the last 800 years because they really do not understand the border. Um, whereas EU leaders do to give them their dues and part of the reason why they do 
is because they had the yeah, I suppose the sense to actually come and visit. So we've brought MEPs, other MEPs have done the same. You know, Michelle Barnier has been here, Guy for Hofstaff has been here, they've spoken to organisations like Border Communities Against Brexit, they've speak, spoken to the farm organisations, business people, they've stood on the farms that are split in two by the border, they've been to the house, which front door is in the north and back door, um, has been in the, in, the, in the south. We're still waiting for the British ministers who are I'm so vocal about wanting a seamless and frictionless border to actually come to the border and hear firsthand what people think of their negotiating strategy. Yeah. Interesting, just the interest that's shown by different European politics in politicians in the borders. It's very interesting. Will that interest be sustained if their own interests become threatened? Do you know if the contribution that Germany has to make to the European budget or if it affects German trade, any potential deal? Will air border concerns not be for pushed further down compared to their own domestic concerns? Yeah, I think the first thing that people need to understand is that it didn't just naturally happen that Ireland was one of the three main issues alongside the financial contribution and the, the issue of citizens' rights, the fact that Ireland is in there in the, in the top three. That didn't just happen um, naturally. That happened because we forced it onto the agenda. And the way we did that was by forcing it onto the Irish government's agenda. Some people forget that... A week after the Brexit vote, the EU27 met in council and Enda Kenny was reported to have gone in to make a very passionate case on behalf of the people of Scotland without mentioning the North of Ireland or Irish border issues at all. So I have to say thanks to Sinn Féin but also to um, to organisations who have started to press the government at that point. The, the Irish government's position did change and we started talking to the, to the EU officials now we, we've been when we started meeting with EU um, counterparts whether the BMEPs or commission reps or council reps in July 2016 August September you know, at, initially there was you know I won't say a reluctance but certainly there was a you know a question and when we'd raise Irish issues did so what do you want us to do about, about it um, and it took us quite some time to explain that for example every argument that Scotland has quite rightly in terms of their position to remain also holds true to the north of Ireland, but the north of Ireland is a place apart. We've had, you know, there's a Good Friday Agreement. It's part of a historic nation that was actually artificially, you know, it's not like Sweden and Norway. The the, the boundary between Ireland north and south was put in because of a just a li- an arbitrary line on the map. You know, if someone's pen had slipped. We could be in the north right now, um, but um, um, and the 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 issues pertaining to obviously um the peace process were were really important. But also the fact that under international law, as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, every citizen in the North is entitled to Irish citizenship, and that makes them de facto EU citizens, even post-Brexit. So we said very clearly to European officials that this wasn't something that they could just look on and see and hope that the British government resolved. This was something that they were players in because their citizens were going to be affected by this. And thankfully, they have come to a point where their position has been strong. Now, you, as you quite rightly say, that's not to say that it will remain as high on the agenda as it is now. And that's why I think we really need to be holding a very firm line. And when I say we, I mean the Irish government in particular, by saying that we will not move on from this phase of negotiations and will not allow a move on until the issue pertaining to the border is addressed. And what that means is we need to get agreement from the British government that the North remains part of the single market and customs union as a first step. Because if we do allow or if we push it to one side and say you'll get something bland in terms of we will try and resolve the issues pertaining to the border you're right as the negotiations go down and when they get to the um, substantive parts of the negotiation like trade 
you're going to start seeing um, conflicts arriving bet- arising between member states that currently aren't there. So the trading interests vis-a-vis Brexit in Flanders is very different than um, you know, Romania. The issues pertaining to the right of movement for, by, for people is very different for the people, uh, for a Polish government than the Spanish government because it's the, the opposite way there. So we really need to make sure that Ireland is, 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 re, is re, um, resolved um, insofar as it can be very early and at this particular stage. If we go on and we think there's a lot of talk about the implications of Brexit and possibly you know leading to a united Ireland, you're looking at opinion polls and looking at the unionist community, I don't determine any sort of shift there. Do you see any, are we any closer to United Ireland because of Brexit or because of, of these issues in terms of the European Union? Yeah, I think I, I think United Ireland is closer than it ever has been before. I think the circumstances have changed. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend that I needed Brexit to convince me that United Ireland was in the best interest of all our people, as I mentioned earlier on. It was one of the primary reasons why I got involved in politics in the first place. But the truth of the matter is that since the Brexit referendum, lots of people who haven't ever asked themselves the question or haven't thought about it for a number of decades or who up until that point would have been completely hostile to even having the conversation are now willing to at least have the the discussion vis-a-vis what a United Ireland would look like, what would it mean for the rights of citizens, including people who feel consider themselves to be British, um, what it would mean in terms of the constitutional makeup. And lots of people are looking to political leaders um, to provide that, that, those answers. We've organised, and I am chair um, the Sinn Féin United Ireland project team, and we've been meeting with lots of people from all different sectors. We've hold, held a number of events which have been huge in terms of the numbers that have turned up at them. Um, and, and there is a growing interest in United Ireland. What I think now, um, and I think you can see that even in terms of so, you know, in the rhetoric of other political parties. So Fianna Fáil have been saying that they're going to publish a, a, their own white paper on Irish unity. That's something I welcome. You know, the fact that it even became a conversation piece during the Fianna Gael referendum or the Fianna Gael leadership um, campaign. You know, if you don't believe times are changing, look at, look at that. Now, unfortunately, we haven't got to the point where any of those parties can advocate for Irish unity without following it in the next sentence by attacking Sinn Féin. And what we've been saying, and I've been saying this as as the head of, the, of Sinn Féin's United Ireland team, and when I've been speaking at any of our conferences, I've been saying very clearly, it's my belief, and the reason why I got involved in Sinn Féin was because that United Ireland won't happen unless Sinn Féin drive um, the campaign for it. But equally, I'm convinced that it won't happen by us on our own. And we are in a, in a, in a position at the moment where... Almost all political parties, with the exception, obviously, of the Unionist parties, claim to want to see United Ireland. Yet none of them are seem or appear willing to want to do anything about it. So we've heard lots of you know for years. I was always always heard that you know United Ireland sure wouldn't make sense. We couldn't afford it. And then all of a sudden we started seeing all these independent studies. In fact, everybody who has independently looked at the prospect of United Ireland has said that there would actually be an economic benefit through reunification and um, so that argument sort of went and then you, you know the big one especially from Fianna Fáil they've been saying it since uh, you know the, the 1950s now is not the right time you know we'd like to see United Ireland but now is not the right time and then all of, and then um, you know um, Brexit comes along and you know you would have to be living on cow cuckoo land to try and say 
that now isn't the right time. You know, like and I always found it bizarre anyway. You know, almost you know, like a hundred and two years after the Easter Rising, it's too soon to talk about you know actually achieving what, uh, what the proclamation set out to to do. Um, and now I think you've seen the recent incarnation where you've seen other excuses. So you know, people um like Leo Vradka turn around and says, well, fifty percent plus one. Wouldn't wouldn't cut it, you know, in terms of a referendum in the in the north, like for a start, he's completely legally wrong on that, and he knows it. But what actually worries me is the purpose behind Leo's statement and uh, words of um, Fianna Fáil and others who say they want to see United Ireland but don't want to actually support any initiative towards achieving that. What they're actually trying to do is just knock the debate on its head. And what they've actually done, and what Leo Varadkar has in particular done, has just give a blank check to those people, particularly in the unionist community, not to engage in a debate that is actually happening around them. So what I have said is, if we yes, we disagree fundamentally on social and economic issues with all those political parties, whether it be SDLP, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. But on this issue, apparently we all agree. We want to see United Ireland. So why can't we all come around the table and actually set out what it is we'd like that United Ireland to look like? So that when we do go to referendum, which I believe we will be sooner than most people think, We'll actually be asking people to vote where they can see what we're what they're what they're actually voting for, so that we don't end up in the Brexit scenario, where the day after a referendum, everybody's trying to scratch their head and figure out what does it mean. Do people know what it will mean in terms of the constitutional arrangements, in terms of the political structures that will be in place, and in terms of the transitional period ahead? No, and that's very interesting. And I suppose it's interesting that you point out that you know it's not just going to be Sinn Féin. There's going to have to be a group of parties, which links me in to a nice part post next general election. Forget about policies. If you look at the type of people who vote for Sinn Féin and the type of people who vote for Fianna Fáil, there was an exit poll done after the last general election. And in terms of social class and in terms of views, there's just a remarkable similarity, much more so than you'd probably have with the Labour Party. Would that not be the perfect coalition fit? Now, I know Fianna Fáil have come out in the last week's Ardesh with the rhetoric against it, but would that not be... Well, I'll say this um, because I do think this is um, important. Say, I want Sinn Féin to be in government. Absolutely. I think that we need to, if we want to deliver for Irish unity, but also um, just as importantly in terms of delivering the type of economic and social change I think this country needs and we need to be in government. I want us to be in government as the largest political party because I think experience has shown us that it is very difficult to go in as a junior coalition partner, especially to one of the, uh, with one of the right-wing establishment parties and deliver the type of change um, that is necessary. So to me, that is our primary objective over between now and whenever the next general election is, that we ensure that we have the largest possible mandate and try and um, emerge as the largest political party. And then after that, it's about a programme for government. I don't necessarily care who it was that voted for Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael or the Labour Party. I actually care about the type of policies that are needed by the people who vote for us. Um, and what people who vote for us want to see is a fundamental change in terms of how this country operates, particularly in relation to how investment in terms of public services, in terms of um, the provision of health and um, um, in terms of housing policy, very importantly, in terms of the regional imbalances on this co- this country, rural Ireland has effectively been abandoned by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael for generations. Um, you know, I for one, I'm sick of 
you know, looking at local papers and seeing a government minister cutting a ribbon and announcing a thousand euro for a community centre when they're implementing policies that mean that there'll be no community there in 20 years' time to avail, avail of it. Um, so um, I think we need to, um, uh, we, it needs to be on a basis, we'll go into government on the basis of the policies and we're not going to get dragged down into the games that Michal Martin, who I happen to think is the most insincere person in Irish politics, I don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth, quite frankly, um, um, and I think he's playing a very dangerous political game, particularly around the north. Um, you know, just willing to um actually throw in the bin the good work that has been done, including by people from his, within his own party over the past um, twenty years. And I think a lot of his stuff is completely disingenuous. So I'm not going to actually deal with the, or I don't think we should deal with the personalities or even um the demographics in terms of the parties involved. What I do think we need to deal with is the policies. And to be quite frank about it, in order for Sinn Fein to go into government. With any of those political parties, there will need to be a significant shift in terms of their position on a lot of the key areas that are affecting our country. Excellent, Matt. Two quick questions, Matt. Um, Matt Calvin Mullins back to a five-seater. Is there any prospect of your name being on the ballot? Sheet in the Calvin Monaghan constituency? Well, I've, I've always said that I think um, Calvin Monaghan... Um, um, has the potential um, to elect two Sinn Féin um, TDs and I absolutely hope that we'll be in a position um, to do it. Um, it's my view that the two candidates, of the, if we want two candidates, one should come from Cavan and one should come from Monaghan. Um, as you know, and as I mentioned, we have a very able candidate in Cuevin O'Callaghan and I have always said that as long as Cuevin is willing to continue his service um, to the people of Cavan Monaghan well then I will support him 100% so in the in the meantime I'll just concentrate on the job at hand. Now if I was to ask you uh, who should be the next leader of Sinn Féin after Gerry Adams you'd give me a nice political answer I'm looking at it from another point of view should there be a contest for that leadership if you look at Fine Gael it seemed to benefit from the contest between Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. So I'd actually give you a very frank answer because I've told people time and time again I think that Pierce Doherty should be the next leader of Sinn Féin. Unfortunately, Pierce um, has said that he doesn't um, doesn't intend to um, to go for that position. But I see it as my job of work to convince him in the time time ahead because I believe that he's a once in a generation political mind. I think he's. Um, a passionate political leader and he's just what Ireland needs I have to say the fact that he has said that he, he he's not running doesn't upset me either because we have lots of other capable people um, who would be um, who, who would be head and shoulders above anything that any other political parties have um, have to offer um, but yeah I think I think a contest w- would be good I don't think we should have a contest for the sake of it just um, um, but I would like to see um, a number of credible candidates putting their name forward and letting the membership decide but one way or another um, you know I think people and I think the media especially with their fixation on leadership misunderstand Sinn Féin and one of the reasons why it's possible that you wouldn't have a leadership um, campaign is simply because we don't actually care that much as to who the figurehead of at the head of our party is because the decisions are actually made collectively. I'm a member of the Sinn Féin Ardcorla. I'll be attending um, the Sinn Féin Ardish in a couple of weeks. We're the only political party whose elected representatives are bound by the decisions that our members make um, at an Ardish. Fianna Fáil had an Ardish last week where they passed all sorts of motions and Miguel Martin came out on Monday and said it doesn't really matter. The parliamentary party um, will, will, this, will decide. So we have a collective leadership. We're the most democratic party 
um, 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 on the on the island. I'm very proud of that. Um, if there's a contest, I think it would be good crack. Um, I think it would be interesting to have um have the type of uh, discussions. But to me, it's more important in terms of what the collective leadership looks like going forward, as opposed to who the person is with the title of leader or president of the party. That's excellent, Matt. You've been very generous with your time. We started with the personal. We'll finish with the personal. One book you'd recommend to people. It's coming up to Christmas. Well, a political book I'd recommend to read to peop- um, people is a book called All Out War that Tim Shipman um, wrote on the Brexit campaign. It's really, really interesting read. Tim Shipman is, a, um, I think it's the Sunday Times, he's the political editor, but the, it's just the insight into both camp- campaigns. Um, in terms of non-fiction, um, Robert Ga- Galbraith, I think, um, writes um, um, Corman Strike series. The first one's called um, The Cuckoo Calling, I think, um, Really, really good stuff. Really enjoyable stuff. Brilliant, man. Very enjoyable and fascinating interview. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks a lot.